Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Haggai. We'll begin this morning considering Haggai chapter 1. You'll find that on page 791 in the Pew Bible in front of you. In case you're not using a Pew Bible, you may not be as familiar with Haggai as you are with the other books of the Bible. If you find the book of Matthew and you go towards the front of the Bible, you'll find Malachi, and then Zechariah, and then finally you'll come to the little book of Haggai. And so I'm excited to be here with you this morning in this wonderful short prophecy which God has given us. And we'll consider Haggai chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In the second year of Darius king, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is written for you yourselves to dwell. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of God. Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Our Father, we're thankful now for this time to consider your word. We pray that you would be our great help. That, Father, you would give us eyes to see it and a heart to rejoice in it, a heart willing to respond to it. We trust, Father, that you would do through your preached word, the movement of your spirit, a great work in our lives individually and in us as a community of faith. So come now, Father, and work that we may become more like Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A man stood before a large audience that had gathered to hear him. 
He addressed them with these words, saying, As you know, I have been very fortunate in my career. I have made a lot of money. Far more than I ever dreamed of. Far more than I could ever spend. Far more than my family needs. No, these are not the words of Donald Trump. But they are the words of a prominent businessman who was speaking at a conference near Oxford University. He said these words, some determination behind them, strength. And yet after he uttered them, there was a a moment of hesitation that betrayed a, a deeper emotion that was taking place in his heart. In fact, as the pause grew longer, a tear slowly rolled down his well-tanned cheek. He continued, To be honest, one of my motives for making so much money was simple. To have the money to hire people to do what I don't like doing. But there's one thing that I have never been able to hire anyone to do for me. Find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I would give anything for that. I suggest to you this morning that he is not alone. Christian author Oz Guinness, who tells this story, goes on to write, In more than 30 years of public speaking and countless conversations around the world, I have heard that issue come up more than any other. At some point, every one of us confronts the question, How do I find and fulfill the central purpose of my life? And it is to answer that question, that God sends the prophet Haggai to the remnant of his people who are beginning to wonder, what is their life about? What is their purpose? Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, next to Obadiah. It was written in the year 520 B.C. In fact, from August, late August to mid-December of 520 B.C. to be exact, Haggai gives four short sermons. And we will uh, start a little series on the book of Haggai. Over the next three weeks, God willing, we'll consider this book. Um, and I delight to do so. We'll get back to Luke, our study of Luke, uh, later on. But I felt it might be good for us to spend some time in, in another book, in the Old Testament even, to hear what God has to say for us. And it's a, a wonderful book, a, a wonderful series, I think it will be, which I have entitled, Renewing the Remnant. And I've entitled the series Renewing the Remnant because Haggai's messages, unlike most of the prophets in which God sends, is not to a rebellious people. Instead, actually to a devoted people. A remnant in which God calls them here in chapter 1. And therefore, in this book of prophecy, there is no decry of idolatry or pagan sacrifice. There is no mention of violence or injustice or adultery, as almost every other prophet seems to do. Instead, Haggai asks those who are devoted to follow God, what are you living for? What are you trusting in? Where is your hope? I think it would help us to understand this book if we gain a little, just remind ourselves of the history surrounding it. It was in, as you perhaps know, in 586 BC, in which the people of God living in Judah continued to rebel against God despite repeated warnings that God sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his army to destroy the nation of Judah. They would ransack the temple, not leaving a stone upon another, and take almost the entire nation of people enslaved off into Babylon on a 900-mile forced march. Fifty years later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeating Babylon, permitted the Jews to return to the Promised Land in 536. 
B.C. They would return not because they were homesick. They didn't go home simply just to move back to the family land. They returned for a very specific purpose, and the purpose was to rebuild the temple. See, the temple is the place where God would dwell. It is called in the scripture, God's house. It is where God would manifest his presence, uh, that God would show his glory. And therefore, in, in some sense, to have no temple meant there is no presence of God with them. And so this remnant returns these 900 miles after five decades to build the temple of God. What an incredible privilege that must have been. Could you imagine the, the honor that would be to actually be one of those who constructed God's home. And, and, and they come home and to restore God's house and to resume the worship as God has commanded them. In fact, they come out of the gates fast. They are excited about this work before them and they immediately clear the courtyard and they, they erect the bronze altar and reestablish the sacrificial system after 50 years of it not being in effect. And by the spring of the next year, they had laid the foundation of the temple amid a great celebration. The book of Ezra tells us when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What an incredible start as his people return home and begin this work. And yet, within nine months, they quit. Less than a year later, they laid down their tools and went home. And they begin to turn their attention upon their own private affairs. It seems that they got used to worshiping God amidst the ruins of a once great temple. In fact, I find it interesting. I, I want to remind you that these are the devoted followers of God in which Haggai is addressing. And you know how many returned from Babylon back to the promised land? The book of Ezra tells us 42,000 people. Remember how many people God redeemed out of Egypt and brought them to this land in the first place? Three million. And now 42,000 come home. Well, where's the rest? Well, they stay in Babylon. I mean, they've been living there for five decades, right? It's home to them now. They're comfortable. It's a good place to live. They've raised their family. They have their jobs. They stay there. And yet 42,000 out of their devotion to God would leave everything they know, many of them never having stepped foot in this land or knowing what awaits them when they get there, leaving their comfort and security behind. They travel 900 miles by foot back home. These are, these are not unbelievers. These are the people who want to please God, who want to follow God's will for their life. But when they get home, you know what happens? Well, life happens. They get busy. I mean, they have a job and have a spouse and have kids and hobbies. And their zeal for God is soon replaced with the, with the busyness of life. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. I don't know if you've heard that story before, perhaps even experienced it. Soon this remnant will have nice houses in which they live in, along with frustration and exhaustion for their hectic and busy life, and they begin to wonder, what is our life about anyways? Fifteen years pass since they lay down their tools, and God sends to them two prophets, one Zechariah, whose book follows Haggai, and the other Haggai 
to renew this remnant. We don't know much about Haggai. We only uh, hear of him in the book of Ezra and then, of course, the book that bears his name. Many have speculated that Haggai is one of the few that returned that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. If that's the case, it means Haggai is at least 60 years old. Some have speculated 70 or even 80 plus. One commentator I read calls him the silver-haired prophet rebuking the people. And here he comes. And he begins to ask them, the people, the remnant, what could be more important to you than experiencing the presence of God? I wonder, Hamilton Baptist Church, let me ask you that question. What could be more important to you in your life than experiencing the presence and the pleasure of God? And these people he, he addresses are living a life of frustration and exhaustion and sadness because they ended up seeking, if you will, the Jerusalem dream of nice houses and early retirement and they forgot to seek after God. And in God's great grace for them, he tracks them down and says to them, I don't want you to live like this. I have more for you. I have joy and peace and stability and abundance for you. I have so much more to give you if you would just begin to seek me first. I wonder if God might have a word for you today through this ancient book, that God can help you and I, as he has been for about a month in my study of it, to uh, 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 look at my priorities, to consider my ways, to change what I find important in my life, that he might help us all to change our priorities. Well, Haggai begins, if you will, four points this morning. He begins by exposing their disobedience. Point number one, Haggai comes to expose their disobedience. Note verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Haggai will date all four of his sermons. This being the first day of the month. Of course, the Jews are not on our calendar. They are on a lunar calendar. And so each month has 28 days. The first day of every Jewish month is the new moon. And they would have a new moon offering. They would gather together in the temple courtyard there before the, uh, the altar in which they have erected to give a new moon offering. And it's at this time when the people are gathered together that Haggai receives this call from God to go preach to the people. In fact, notice how he addresses them in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people. That's interesting, isn't it? Typically God addresses the people of Israel as my people. He does not do so here, but calls them these people. I don't know if you ever return home after a long day at work and you might be expecting some type of joyous welcome, a, right? A parade of children, um, embraces, you know, some type of delight and, and you open the door and instead of the, the raucous daddy's home, there's just silence. Sometimes there's silence because there's a sneak attack planned, but often, not often, but sometimes the silence is, is too quiet. And you walk into the living room and there's your wife sitting next to your son or daughter. And after a pause, she might look at you and say, would you like to know what your daughter did today? (laughs) You ever experienced that? Haggai addresses the people from God, these people. We have an early tip off that everything's not well. Well, what's not well? Continue on in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
So they've come to this land to build God's house, but they have claimed that it's not yet time. Now, I want you to understand, they're not saying that rebuilding the temple is unimportant. Nor are they saying that they don't intend to rebuild the temple of God. It's just not time yet. It's not a no, it's just a not yet. We will, they say, do what's right. We intend to do what's right, but we have other things that we need to do first. Now, of course, this is not unique to the people of Israel 2,500 years ago. This is a universal tendency. And I trust there may be many people here today who would say and have been saying, I want to experience the presence of God. I want to get my life right with God. I want to get my home in order. I want to have victory over sin. I want to start tithing. I want to start sharing the gospel with a co-worker. I, I want to be able to challenge a wayward brother. And I will. I'm going to do it. Just not now. It's just not time now. How many people have been saying that for weeks, if not months, and years roll by? And when is it the right time? Often we are like St. Augustine who once prayed, Give me purity and self-control, just not yet. Right? He had life he wanted to live a little bit. He wanted to be pure one day, but it wasn't time for him. Maybe you're here today and you have yet to surrender your life to Christ. And you, you have been saying in your own heart, someday I will. Someday I intend to bow my knee to Jesus. But now is not the time. We have a word for that, of course. We call it procrastination. But God doesn't call that. God calls it disobedience. We have a saying in the Karn home that delayed obedi- obedience is disobedience. When mom and dad say do something, we expect it to be done at the time in which we say it. And I would say the same holds true, even more so for our God. I have read the Bible many times. I trust that you have as well. And I have not come upon a single incident in which God says, I want you to obey, but take your time. I don't remember ever seeing God say, yes, you have to do this, but I'm willing to wait for you to get your life in order to do it. I don't know if a single instance when God says, yes, conditional obedience is appropriate. Delayed obedience is okay with me. Obedience means now. So I wonder, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my dear friends, is there an area in which you are putting God off? Is there an area of obedience that you intend to get to, but are unwilling to to do it now? Let's call that what it is, disobedience. It's a rejection of the purpose of God in your life. God's word to you this very moment from the prophet Haggai is to obey him now. And he comes and he exposes their disobedience and moves on secondly and he challenges their priorities. He begins to explain why it is or the the sin that is in their disobedience. Their priorities are all wrong. In verse 3 we read, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Right? They insist it's not time to build the temple, but evidently they have plenty of time to build their own homes. Now, of course, they need homes to live in. I don't think God would begrudge them that. They need a place to reside. But you notice what type of homes they have. They have paneled homes. Now, Israel is almost a deforested place. There's not much wood. You don't build your homes out of wood like we do here. You build it out of stone. And yet these people have found a way in order to line their homes with paneling. 
They would import this cedar, perhaps from Lebanon, be very expensive, and they would put it up all over their homes. And I don't know if you can catch the sarcasm there in verse 4, where God says, wait a second, let me get this right. It's not time to build my house, verse 2, but somehow it's time for you to panel your own. See, the problem isn't with your schedule. It's not with your busyness. The problem is with your priorities. You have a choice, people of Israel. You could have your, your crown molding, or you could have the presence of God. Which should you choose? Right? And evidently, that's a tough choice for them. And many of them, and perhaps most of them, think, well, we're going with the wainscoting, I think. Right? We want the molding in our home. Now, please, don't, don't take this too far. God's not rebuking you for your crown molding in your dining room. He's not rebuking you or them for having nice things. He is rebuking them because they prefer the nice things to the presence of God. And God is coming to them through the prophet and saying, it's not why I saved you. This is not why I sent you back to this land. I've sent you here. I have saved you. I have redeemed you from your bondage so that you would find your joy in me and in my glory and in my presence. Now, I remind you, church, that these are the devoted people of God. These are the evangelical church of the day. These are the people who attend worship service faithfully and want to have a nice family. They even want to please God in their life. But he is not first. He comes down the line. They will not place him first in their lives. And so he comes at them with a very striking rhetorical question. And then he invites them in verse 5 to respond. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is a phrase you will find four times in the book of Haggai. To consider your ways. Consider your ways, people of Israel. You have just wasted 15 years of your life. I would echo these words this morning, Hamilton Baptist Church, including myself in that group. Consider your ways. Are you too busy to read the Word? Too busy to devote yourself, spend 20 minutes a day in intercessory prayer. Too busy to join a community group or get involved in ministry or enter into a discipling relationship. Have too much on your plate to do these things. And yet, it seems that we have time to watch our favorite shows, to never miss a game, to get to the gym, make the sale, check Facebook a hundred times a day. Right? Be careful when you say to God, I don't have enough time for you. In fact, I appreciate John Piper who said one of the great purposes of Twitter and Facebook will will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not due to a lack of time. Consider your ways. In fact, let me ask you this. If you could just picture for a moment your perfect life. Just kind of dream for a moment. What does a perfect life look like to you? If you had everything going your way, what would it look like? Get that picture in your mind. I ask you, where is God in that picture? Has he made it? Do you dream about serving his kingdom? Do you dream about great life of prayer and obedience in your heart? When you think about the life you want to live, is God prominent in it? Consider your ways, he says. Of course, our, the point for us is not to build a temple, right? In fact, the temple in this day always pointed to another temple. We are to build a temple, as a matter of fact. Just not a temple made of stone. We're to build a temple made out of lives, right? And this is what the scripture tells us in the, the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you all, you all 
are God's temple. Not, not me individually necessarily, but, but all of us together are God's temple. And that God's Spirit dwells in you all. Right? He intends for us, just like Israel in Haggai's day, to build the temple. To build this temple which God has created. The body of Christ. His church. So, in fact, Paul says a handful of verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.10, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Right? Paul says, I came to you, Corinth, and I put the foundation down, which is Jesus Christ. And now look, other people are building upon it. They're not quitting. Don't put up your tools, Hamilton Baptist Church. You have been gifted by the Spirit of God for the building up of the common good. Give yourself to God's mission. This is what God calls them to do. This is what God calls us to do. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you only labor for your private affairs and neglect the work in which God has called every single believer to give himself to do what he has saved us for, you will find your life filled with frustration and discontentment. At least that was what was happening in Haggai's days. We consider number three, their, their hardship is explained. Haggai goes on to explain that life is not good like they had planned, even though they're devoting themselves to their own affairs, as you see in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I don't know, does that sound familiar to some of you? I feel like Haggai's reading my bank statements. Right? There always seems to be more month than paycheck. Right? There seems to be more expenses, doesn't there? And it seems like, like we think, where, where does the money go? Where does the, where did the time go? There's a, some, a back door on my accounts. And so often we think, I just can't catch up. I can't slow down. Right? And even what we have doesn't satisfy evidently, right? They're just totally in discontent. They're, they're molding in their houses is not bringing them the joy that they thought it might. They want more and there's never enough. It's, it's more food or better cars or bigger TVs or faster computers or cooler phones or nicer restaurants. And we keep going for more and more and more and still it leaves us unsatisfied, filled with discontentment and frustration. You see what's happening here, and I think it's true for us as well, if you devote yourself to eating and drinking and playing and making money, eventually you will discover that is not what your life is about. It does not fulfill what you need. It's not, it's, it's not enough. It will never be enough. You see, if you spend your time seeking comfort and security and not the presence of God, even the pleasures in which you experience will leave a sour aftertaste of discontentment. It's because we're not what we're made for. In fact, God goes on to give them a deeper understanding of this frustration they're experiencing. Note verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above... have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. You notice God is disciplining them. And it's interesting because he is disciplining them in, in kind of the, matching their sin with his discipline. He says, you neglect me for the world. I will make sure you never have enough of the world. I'm going to withhold from you. And now I think we need to be careful here and not, not conclude that every hardship we face is linked up to a specific sin in which we are committing. 
Right? The Bible tells us people like Joshua and Job and Paul's thorn in his flesh and even Jesus himself. We will suffer in this life and it's not always disciplined to some type of sin. But we could swing the pendulum too far. And we can conclude that God does not discipline His people for their sin or that God does not bless His people in very practical ways for their righteousness. I remind you of the passage that our brother Butch read for us this morning in Matthew 6 and verse 33. The Lord Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. What thanks? Food, drink, clothing. God says, you seek me first and I will come and I will bless you not only in the life to come, but in very real and practical ways. And so God sends this frustration on them to get their attention. In fact, he says a second time in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about your life. Think about why you never have enough. Think about why it always disappears. Sometimes we think, well, I just need a better job, or I need more money, or I need more time. And God says, wait a second, let's just think about this. Think about this. Sometimes the difficulties in your life have come to expose sin in your life. Consider, perhaps, and I think God says through this book, your financial hardship. Consider the financial difficulties that you have faced. Maybe your financial hardship is due to your lack of faithful stewarding. And maybe if you were a faithful steward with God's money, you would find that you have enough money. No, you have not turned on a TV preacher. You have opened the book of Haggai. This is not exactly what Haggai is saying. That their lack has to do with their, la- their lack of, uh, of, of, of finances, their lack of, of food and drink has to do with their lack of stewardship in their life. And, and, and I, th- I think God would, would say to those who do not give that why would I entrust you with more when you're not faithful with what I have given you? The Bible does say, he who is faithful a little will be entrusted with much. Perhaps you consider that this struggle in your life is due to a a sin in your life, a failure to give. Now, I say this not because Hamilton Baptist Church needs money. Praise the Lord, for the third year in a row, we have run a budget surplus. I think that's extraordinary. I'm very, very pleased with what God is doing through you. And as you know, as I try to say every other month or so, that we don't save our money. We don't put in a bank account and earn a quarter percent interest. If we exceed budget, we set all that aside for missions. And because of your giving last year, we now have an additional $33,000, which we can use to support local, national, and international missions. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm very, very pleased with that. Many of you give sacrificially and are faithful stewards, but I trust there are some here that do not. And I would just lovingly ask you to consider the book of Haggai and the message he has. I don't say this because we need the money. I say this for your own soul's sake. That God will bless those who are serious about his work. God dries it up in order to get our attention. Consider your ways. He says these people, they've been spending their last 15 years pursuing their own things, and where has that left them? It's left them in want, left them hungry and thirsty and discontent. It reminds me of a story that I heard from another preacher named Shay Sumlin. Shay wasn't raised in a Christian home, but in high school, a friend invited him to church for the first time ever. And there he walked into that church building and 
heard the gospel and God worked in his heart and he placed his faith in Christ that very first night. He came home full of joy and exuberance of his newfound faith in God and he walked into the, his home with his stepdad and his mom there on the couch and his two older brothers and he proudly announced to his family, I got saved tonight. And they all looked at him as if he was insane. His older brother scoffed at him and called him an idiot. Well, a few years later, Shay was at college, got a call from his mom. She was crying as she told him that his oldest brother and his wife were splitting up. His family had a little boy and a little girl, but the wife had had an affair, and the husband was done with her. The mom said that he called me, and he said he wants to get the best lawyer he can because he, he wants the kids. And so after she ended that call, Shay remembers sitting in his dorm room weeping and praying for his brother and his family. A couple weeks later, he received a call from his brother. And Shay explains the story this way. We never talked a whole lot. Yet he calls me and asks me a question that chills me to this day. He says, Shay, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose my wife over this. What can your God do? To save my marriage. Can you drive down here and talk with both of us and walk us through what your God can do to fix this? Shay continues saying, I jumped in the truck and headed down to Houston. Now I'm 20 years old. I don't know a whole lot about marriage. Half the time I feel like I'm curled in a fetal position thinking there's no way I want to do this. The other half the time I'm trying to recall the five memory verses that I have memorized through Navigator's. His brother happened to be a very successful man. He had a great job at a computer company, worked his all the way up to an executive, was wealthy, huge house, three-car garage, pool out back. Shay describes the scene this way. I arrived at this massive house, and he's in one corner of the room, and his wife is in another corner, completely cold to each other. And sitting on the couch is my dad and stepmom. They were all looking at me, wanting to know what your God can do to fix this. So I said, David and Terry... Jesus shared a story about two different people who built, who both built houses. One built a house on sand with no foundation, and when the storm came, it devastated it. The other man built his house on a solid rock and anchored it in deep. And when the storm came, it remained. I love you, he said, but for your entire life, you have neglected every attempt that God has pursued you to follow him. And instead, you have followed your own way. You built this phenomenal castle. And now the storm has come and devastated your life. My advice to you as a humble 20-year-old would be to pursue Jesus. To anchor yourself in the rock. I don't promise you that there won't be other storms to come, but you will be sown into that rock. He loves you. He has been pursuing you since you were born. And right now, I believe louder than ever, he is wooing you to himself if you would just surrender. Well, Sheikh ends the story by saying, by the end of our time, their chairs had scooted together and tears were coming down their cheeks. That week, I watched my brother place his faith in Jesus Christ. I watched his wife place her faith in Jesus Christ. And over that next year, I've watched their marriage reconcile. In fact, my brother has gone completely insane because he quit his job and is now a pastor. 
His wife and he spend their days counseling other couples who are going through adultery and showing them that there is redemptive hope in Jesus Christ, who is a God who can take the broken pieces of our world and put them back together again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What do you do if you find yourself in a situation when you have put life ahead of God? What do you do when you find your life to be empty and frustrated? You find yourself separated from the presence of God? The answer is in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In other words, the solution is obedience. Stop focusing on yourself and begin to seek me first, God says. Seek my kingdom first. Build my house, he says. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified through it. Now, Hamilton Baptist Church, we talk a lot about the glory of God. We sing about the glory of God. We preach about the glory of God. We say we are uh, uh, want to do everything for the glory of God. But what if God showed up in your house this afternoon and knocked on your door and said, Are you serious? Because I hear you every Sunday say, I'm about the glory of God. Are you serious? And you would say, yes, Lord, I'm serious. What might he say to you? Perhaps he would say to you, go get the lumber then. And start building my house. Stop with the excuses. And get busy building my kingdom in your own life, in your family's life, in the church's life, around this world. Right? We say, I know I should. I know I should be in the Word. I know I should be leading my family. I know I should be praying with my wife, and I'll do it soon. You know, life has to calm down first. God is coming, and He says to this prophet, I want to be first in your life, that I might take pleasure in your life, that you might have my pleasure, and I will give it to you. I will give my pleasure to you if you will just seek me first. I love the story that Eugene Peterson The Christian author tells of tree swallows when he was staying at his retreat in Montana. He says, one summer, I watched for weeks swallows build a nest, lay their eggs, and finally three chicks hatched from the nest sitting on a branch four feet above the lake below. Well, eventually, the mama started shoving the babies towards the end of the branch, just pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, the first chick fell off the branch, and somewhere between the branch and the lake below, the wings started work. And the, the bird flew off. And then she, she pushed the second off, and, and he too flew away. And the third chick evidently wasn't so sure of, about this. And the third chick reached the end of the branch, and, and it's, the chick's uh, grasp of the branch loosened, but only enough for it to swing downward. And there this little chick hung upside down from this tree branch. And the mama, acting in her maternal instinct, began to peck at his feet. Right? <laughs> And she's just pecking and pecking away until finally the pain of, of mama's pecking was greater than the fear of letting go. And this third chick let go and he too began to fly. You see, the mama chick knew what, what the chicks didn't know. That there is no danger in forcing the chick to do what he was designed to do. Peterson concludes, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch. They can walk and they can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. My friends, there are many things you and I could do. Many things we could devote ourselves to. Many things we can busy our life with. 
But it is not until we are serious about the thing that is most important in our life, the presence of God, the pleasure of God, obeying God, where you will, it's not until you get to that point where you will, you will not find what you're made to do until you begin to seek after God. You will not find what life is about until God becomes first in your priorities. This is the message to them. You want to know how they respond? Consider fourthly, a devotion renewed. Verse 12 tells us, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. Right? What they do? They obey. That, they, they obey immediately. In fact, how often, by the way, does a prophet come to God's people, g- deliver his message, and it is followed by obedience? Almost never. Right? One commentator said, Haggai is without parallel. No prophet was ever more successful. I'm not sure if that's true, but it is amazing. After 15 years of neglect and frustration, they begin finally to seek the Lord first. And by the way, it begins in their heart. Read on in verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. Right? Repentance always is a matter of the heart first. It always starts in the heart before it moves to the hands. Right? It's, it's not, they didn't say, okay, well, this is what we're supposed to do. Let's go grab some shovels and some mortar and get to work. No, the, the, the obedience begins from within them. The repentance comes in their, their heart, right? The first act of repentance that any of us must do is, is not the action, but is the heart's conviction. We come to God and say, God, what have I done? We come to God and say, God, I'm sorry that I put you off. I'm sorry that I've delayed what you've been calling me to do. I'm sorry that I've been disobeying you for all these years. This is what happened in their heart. In fact, it, he says they feared the Lord. God has begun to explain to them there are consequences to your sin. You realize that? There are disobedience brings God's discipline in our lives. And they begin to understand this and they begin to fear God and realize, wait a second, God is serious about my life. God is serious about His kingdom. And God is God has come and begun to discipline me for this. And they begin to respond in their heart and they fear God. And as soon as their heart is troubled, I love this, as soon as their, their heart is filled with fear, as soon as they repent, notice God's response, verse 13. Then Haggai, he has one more message for them. The messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You see, as soon as their heart turns back to God, what happens? God says, I'm with you. Before they pick up a tool, Before they head back out to the temple foundation, before they grab a stone and begin to work, God says, I am with you as soon as repentance begins in the heart. And by the way, the temple, the whole point of the temple was the presence of God, wasn't it? Right? We're going to build the temple. That's where God will dwell. That will be God's house. That's where we'll go to meet with God. And yet before the temple is even constructed, God says to them, before there's even a house in which I can have it, I want you to understand I have come and I am with you. This is what God does to the repentant every single time. He's been doing it for thousands of years. And my friends, if you in your heart would right now would truly say to God, God, I repent of my sin. God, I'm turning from this. God, I'm going to begin to put you first. I guarantee this very moment before this service is over, the guilt will be lifted from you and the presence and the pleasure of God would come upon you and you would feel yourself being drawn to God. He will come just like he did with the people of Haggai and he will be with you. God always 
draws near to the repentant. In fact, God is helping them to do it. Look in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, right? He, literally, he awoke their spirit. He's awakening these lethargic people. As Haggai preached, God began to work in their hearts. He began to stir them up. Maybe God is even stirring your spirit up right now through the preached word that you could even just zone me out for the rest of the time and you alone could just pray to God, will you stir me up? Will you give me the resolve to hate my sin? Will you give me a passion for your glory and for your presence? Will you help me to have a new start to turn my back upon this way of disobedience that God might come in your spirit and bring life to it, to, to awaken it up. And it's what God is doing in their life. And their hearts are changed. Their spirits are stirred. And as a response, their hands follow. The end of verse 14, Scripture tells us, and they came and worked on the house of, of the Lord, of the Lord of hosts, their God. Where they begin to work on it. The book of Ezra tells us how this was. Ezra 5. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews, then Zerubbabel and Joshua arose and began to rebuild the house of God. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. I don't know if you can see in your mind's eye this army. Thousands of people begin to build the house of God. And their elderly Haggai is right by their side, moving stone around and helping erect the house of God. All this took place, according to verse 15, on the 24th day of the first month. In this, on, the fir- on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I don't know if you noticed. There it is. It's 24 days. Start on the first day. 24 days later, his people have changed. And by the way, it is his people. Remember in verse 2, he calls them these people. You see that end of verse 14? They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. See that little phrase? Their God. The distance between them and God has now been gapped, abridged. The gap has been closed. When you obey God, when you fear God, when you draw near to God, that gap between you and God is bridged. Listen, you and I live in a, in a, a world full of temptation. We live in a world of busyness. I understand that as well as you do. We live in a world, by the way, of abounding wealth here in Loudoun County. I trust you, along with I, often feel the temptation to neglect the work in which God has called me to do in my own life, in my family, in my church, and instead give myself for more trivial things, to pursue my own affairs. May God help us to forsake this way, to to show the world what it looks like to seek God's kingdom first, that He might dwell in our midst, that He might be with us with His pleasure and glory. We have a mission, church. Hamilton Baptist Church, you have a mission. Just as, just as they had a mission. right? In fact, you think about their story. This is a people in bondage because of their sin. But then God redeems them out of that bondage and brings them out so that they might return to Him. And then he, He's freed them. Why? So that they cannot necessarily live their life to serve themselves, but the King who has saved them. Does that sound familiar? Friends, that's the gospel. 
That's what God did for them. It's what God has done for you, Christian, that you and I are made to love Him. And instead, we have gone our own way and we have loved ourselves and found ourselves in bondage to sin and discouragement. And at the right time, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and offer Himself in our place to bear our punishment for our sin, to bear God's wrath upon Himself as He hung on Calvary's cross and three days later rose from the dead victoriously and has redeemed us by faith, has freed us from our bondage. Why? Not so that we could turn to our own affairs, but so we can seek the pleasure in the presence of God by turning to His, by serving Him, by following Him. Let's be that people. Let's do that. There's certainly an area in your life, there's got to be some place in all of our lives where God is not first. May God by His Spirit reveal that to you. That you may say, God, enough of this. I put you first in my life. Not, not so that we could get rid of this guilt, so that we can know the presence of God, which is far more abundantly wonderful and beautiful than all of our trivial and trifling things that we so often occupy ourselves to. May God move in our heart that we could show the world that we live for our God and not the things of this world. And may God, my friend, move in your heart. Certainly there is one here who has been putting Jesus off and saying, oh, I'll get to him. I got life to live first. I'll get to Christ one day. Can that day be the day? Can God not stir in your heart even now that you might submit your life completely to Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And every Christian in this room would testify to you that there is no greater delight than being saved by God. He'll wash away all your sins, forgive you of all your disobedience, adopt you into his family, that you might live forever with him. May he do that even now. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word and the challenge that it is to our lives. God, what great challenge your word is to me. Will you help me to repent, Father, even now? Will you help your community of faith, Hamilton Baptist Church, to repent even now? Father, that we would not say to you next week, next month, Next afternoon that we would say, now I'm going to obey now. And not stir up our spirits that we might fear you. In order to obey you, that we might know of your presence and your pleasure in our lives. And Father, as my brothers and sisters begin to repent even now, will you, as you did in Haggai's day, say to them through your spirit, I am with you, my daughter. I am with you, my son. And I am far greater than anything you will find in this world. Help us to believe that to be true. And help our friend here, Father, who has yet to give their life to you. Will you even cause them now, awaken their spirit, cause them to be born again, that they might trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.